You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 156 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm I'm okay, Valerie. Yes, That's I'm all right. Good. Do you know what? I'm actually feeling very virtuous. I actually, I washed the car this morning. Oh, gosh. I know. I came what? home from my Why? morning walk with Procrasty Pub and washed the car. Okay, what all, possessed you, before what motivated you to do that? Uh, it was absolutely filthy. So <laughs> I took, I took uh, Mr. 12, oh, he's 13 now. I took Mr. 13 out to um, Nippers yesterday and we had to drive through some roadworks, which in the rain had become, you know, slush city and the car was covered in mud. So I drove it back in the rain and I put it in the driveway and then one of my boys, no one is admitting to who, has written, clean me in in the mud. And I was like, well, you know, given that you wrote clean me in there, perhaps you would like to go and clean it. Um, But it was still Uh, raining. There's not a lot of point washing the car in the rain. So, um, yeah, so anyway, so I came home this morning and I thought, I cannot drive around town with clean me written on the side of my car. So I washed the car. Well done. Well, you know, it's one way to start the day, isn't it? When I was little, I used to love going through those car washes where you get to sit in the car as the car goes through and the suds all. It was like my greatest thrill in life. I only (laughs) wish that that it still existed. I went with a friend because I thought there was one in, um, I think it was Bondi Junction or somewhere, and I was, I went, oh, look, there's a car wash. Let's go. Let's go. I'm going to sit inside. And I, we drove up. We paid the money. And we got to the, you know, entrance of the garagey looking thing with all the suds. And they said, okay, thanks. We'll have your keys. And I went, don't you get to sit in the car? And they, they just looked at me like I had three heads. Oh. Obviously, times have changed. And changed, they, they're like, no. And I went, oh, well, I don't want to wash the car then. There are, I'm pretty sure there are still a couple that where you can do that, but you might just have to get out of trendy areas like Bondi. You might have to go well, out to the West, Val. Well, if anyone knows of any, please do tweet <laughs> me because it's like the best fun ever. And so um, There's probably one here know. somewhere I could find for you. You could come and visit me for the weekend just so we could go and sit in the car. Go on. <laughs> All right. I'm coming back to you with this. This will be funny. And we, we'll so, do our next podcast cast from the car from the while car. the thing goes over us. Yeah, that will be awesome. No, seriously, if anyone knows of any, let me know because I want to know. All <laughs> <laughs> okay. right. So this is not do you want to wash your car. This is no. so you want to be a writer. So what have you been That's up to right. this week? I haven't had a lot of sleep. <laughs> oh, why? Yeah, I was up till. 4 a.m. 
this morning. 4 a.m.? Doing yeah, what? You're going to tell became... me macrame or something, aren't you? Yeah, I was doing macrame. Oh, it's my, no. It's like I've just discovered macrame. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. And so I need to perhaps temper my obsession somewhat. You I do know. have a very obsessive personality, don't you? Like it's I like know. if you're going to do something, <laughs> you're going to do it at full throttle, aren't you? Yeah. Even macrame. <laughs> yeah, even macrame. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. We'll see how long this phase lasts. But on the weekend I did do a uh, workshop, a morning workshop in. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Brush lettering. Brush lettering. Yeah, because, you know, I like words. Yeah. And I like pretty looking words because I love typography. So mm. I thought, well, make your own kind of typography by doing brush lettering. So I did a brush lettering workshop. You continue to astound me, Valerie. <laughs> this is what I love about our relationship. There's always something new, isn't there? <laughs> uh, uh, well, it was good fun. What have sure you been up to apart from washing the car? I haven't been doing anything that interesting. Well, I haven't been doing creative lettering or anything like that. Yeah, no, I haven't done anything. You know, I meant to go and see Jasper Jones on the weekend oh, at yeah. the movies. So that yeah. was going to be on my, you know, I had that on my list and I didn't get there. Yes. Yes. Why, why not? I don't know. I think I was going to go with Mr. 13 and then he dumped me for a friend. So that oh. sort of, you know, that got rid of, I, yeah, I just, you know, he went, he really liked it. And, um, and my husband went on Sunday while I went and did the shopping, so he really liked it. But I just haven't got there. I'm going to go tomorrow at like 11 a.m. I'm going to go on a weekday and I'm going to really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I remember we interviewed Craig Sylvie, who, of course, is the author of Jasper Jones some time ago, um, and uh, he was a really interesting guy. And, of course, in Jasper Jones, one of the characters is played by Matt Nabel, who is also an author that we interviewed. Uh, he wrote Guilt um, some episodes That's right. ago. Mm. That's right. And, in fact, Mr. 13 said to me, that bloke that you interviewed for your podcast was in the movie, Mum. <laughs> there you go. I'm like, that bloke. <laughs> okay. That narrows it down. Okay. All right. So now we want to give a shout-out to Owen Zupp. Now, Owen has left us a review on iTunes, and he's called it Consistent Quality. And Owen says, I listen to a number of writing podcasts, and So You Want to Be a Writer has the ability to cover a diverse range of topics while maintaining a consistent standard. Well done. Well, it's good to be consistent, isn't it, Al? That's right. Thank you so much, Owen. And uh, yes. thanks for you know putting up with our long and involved discussions about car washing before we actually get to the writing. At least yes. we're consistent with that as well. We do like yes. a segue <laughs> before we begin, don't we? Um, yeah, thank you so much, Owen. And if you do have uh, 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week? Let's. Well, I have an interesting link from The Right Life. It's by Emily Wenstrom, and uh, it's called, the post is called, Her Debut Novel Just Turned One, Which Marketing Tactics Worked? Now, I thought this was really interesting because she's looking at it in hindsight. She's now had her book out for a year, and she's done a whole bunch of different marketing strategies and she talks about the things that worked and the things that didn't. So 
I think this is a really interesting post because she um, she says that some of the successes were reader events and mm. she says that this has been the best way to sell books consistently and obviously when you have that touch point with readers they re- they they often become loyal after that and they have a more vested interest to buy your book as well mm. but Apart from the reader event, she also talks about networking. And that is simply, she says, talking to the people around me at reader events, not just the readers, but other authors. This has led to a number of additional opportunities. A couple of other things that she mentions are um, awards. Now, the thing is... uh, of course, sometimes awards are bestowed on you, but sometimes you have to enter awards. So mm. I think it's worthwhile in keeping your eye out to enter awards as well. She also talks about um, her, e- her e-newsletter, which we also talk about as an important mm. way to keep in touch with your readers. And, of course, there's we have a lot of discussion about that and other platform-building tips in Alison's fantastic course, How to Build Your Author Platform, which you can find out more at um, if you go to writercentercomau slash platform. But the interesting thing that she says, and I disagree with, is she says, well, I guess I can't disagree with it because she says that it worked for her, but I think that she's looking at it through the wrong lens. She says that Facebook ads worked for her. Now, Mm. she said, this is the primary way I expand my reach to new readers online right now, helping my list to grow from 21 followers at its start last February to over 800 today. The best hook has proven to be a free novella offer. Now, I think that that is not the right way to necessarily look at things. Facebook ads in particular, um, if you're doing a Facebook ad campaign just for likes, it is not expensive and you get likes pretty quickly and that's good for your ego. But those people who are just liking, they're not necessarily going to buy your book. It's not necessarily a targeted uh, strategy. But, mm. in, but if you're using Facebook ads to then get a lead gen, as in to get people to download your uh, lead generation, to download your free novella or to buy your book, I personally think that Facebook ads are very expensive way and that uh, to, to do that and that it doesn't offer the return on an investment that you would hope because when people buy your book it's actually you know $25 $30 whatever it's not a huge price point and sometimes you have to spend quite a lot of on a Facebook ad in order to get a result so mm. I would I personally would be wary of Facebook ads. Um, but yeah, that's just my opinion. Interesting. Um, yes. But she also did a bunch of things um, that she said didn't work, which mm. is which is interesting. Mm. Um, she, she said that uh, she created an email automation series with the goal of delivering her free novella to new readers and turning those readers into novel sales. It hasn't worked so far. Hence my point, because her Facebook ad was designed to get people to download the free novella. And she's just said herself that it hasn't turned into novel sales. So this is why I think... Facebook ads is completely inappropriate in, in this instance. Um, do you think that well. do you think the free book as sales incentive kind of the idea, novella. which worked extremely well, um, probably yes. four years, three or four years ago, do you think it's lost 
its kind of value a little bit now? Do you think people have just – do you think that there are so many free novellas and free books available that people don't value them as much as they did? I think it depends on two things. One, the quality of the novella, because obviously if you don't write something engaging where people want to know more, they're not going to care anyway, right? Yeah, that's so, true. Presuming you've written a really good novella or a really good thing that makes people want to know more, I think the failure is not in the concept. I think the failure is targeting the wrong people, which is why I think Facebook ads do not target the right people because it's very Yeah, but I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about the Facebook ad per se, like I'm moving on now to the actual right. free novella as incitement to to um, sign up to then buy. Because so, a lot of um, indie publishers in particular will use them, um, and I know this only from, you know, all of my various readings online, will use them as to, to hook readers into a series. Like it will often be about like I've got five books here. I'm going to give away book one um, mm. as a free book. And in ah. the hopes that that will then make people buy two, three, four, five, six, et cetera. But my question here is, um, do you think that there are two, like there are so many free books on offer yeah. that you could spend your whole life just reading free books. You don't ever have to buy another book in your whole life. Like, do you, so, so then my question becomes, do you think the value of the free book has lessened, you know, in the last couple of years or not? Yes. Uh, I do think so. It, and in this particular example that you're talking about where they're giving away book one in the hopes mm. that you will buy books two, three, four, whatever, mm -hmm. um, I think that you devalue books two, three, four, whatever if you're giving away book one. I think mm -hmm. that you need to be challenging, ch channeling your energies into a more compelling reason to buy book one. You know, um, yes. a, a, a better sales page or a, or a better blurb for your book or a much better, you know, whatever. Uh, you, whatever your marketing tool is to entice people into buying book one, it's just got to be better. Yeah, because it used to be, I mean, it started out, the free book started out as a, a way to game Amazon, like in the sense that you yes, got X yes. number of downloads for free and you ended up sort of in those top rankings and therefore people, you know, it's a discoverability thing, I guess, more than anything else. Um, I just wonder if it's as effective you know, now, and particularly with Amazon's, you know, I think Amazon has really tightened up its algorithms and it's, you know, the whole Kindle Select program and all of yes. those things that they do, um, you know, seem to be designed to make it harder to game yeah. the system, and, yeah? And I do think that, it will, yeah, it devalues the book and it makes, see, because if you offer the first book for free, then your second book, if it's suddenly $30 or $25, it's mm -hmm. such a big jump. You almost have a force to sell it at, you know, six ninety nine or what a, a much cheaper price. And, mm -hmm. it, and you, you're so right in that there are so many free books these days. I was talking some um, a hairdresser the other day, and because he commutes to Sydney from Newcastle every single day there and back, that's like mm -hmm. a long way. Mm -hmm. um, he reads a lot, like mm -hmm. a lot, on his Kindle, and he only. This is an interesting thing. Only reads free books. Does he? Yeah, so I was chatting to him a long time because he was doing my hair. Um, uh, uh, yeah, only reads free books. And so, you know, there's obvious – and he has no uh, – obviously there's no shortage for him to, that, to do that ridiculous commute, um, ridiculously long commute, uh, and he has to occupy his time. Yeah, wow. Well, I'd be interested to know what our listeners think about it. I, I mean, are you tempted by the free book? Have you ever bought 
you know, an author's work because of the free book or do you Mm. sort of get the free book and enjoy the free book and then that's all? I'm just interested to know, you know, whether or not it's actually, um, you know, still a tactic that works basically. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. definitely let us know. Okay, so let's move on to another link, which is on the Matador Network, and it's by Amanda Mercado, and it's called Five Beliefs That Held Me Back When I First Started Freelance Writing. Now, I think this was interesting because there are so many things that can hold us back as writers, and particularly if you're venturing into the world of freelance writing and you want to make a living from it, there's a lot of um, yeah, self-limiting beliefs that may may mean that you're not progressing as fast as you want to. And I thought one of the most interesting ones in this list, and of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at so you want to be a writer com.au. Um, but one of the interesting ones was she says, getting published in a prestigious publication is the only way you'll feel fulfilled. So a lot of people want to get into the world of freelance writing and they want to get published in the Australian magazine first off or Good Weekend as their first off. And I think that's fantastic that you have those goals. But sometimes if you've ne- never written anything before, it is wise to cut your teeth and really hone your craft on the less high-profile high and exciting ones. There's, mm. That's not to say that you can't aim for them, for sure, but I would say don't necessarily aim for them first unless you're already some kind of professional writer because your, your, your newness at the craft is likely to be able to be easily spotted by an experienced editor. Mm. And so you probably want to hit that editor editor up once you've had a little bit more experience under your belt and you they, and it becomes more obvious that you're a professional writer. Mm. So I just thought I'd mention that because I do see, I do meet quite a bunch of people who – you know, their, their, their main aim is they want to get published in some of the top publications. And like I said, great aim, but it's it's a pathway <laughs> and That's you need right. to take some steps first. And I also think like this whole notion of fulfilment is quite an interesting one too because I actually think in some ways, um, I think if you can take, I, I, I get almost as much if not more satisfaction out of taking some of those subjects, topics, that people would dismiss as being incredibly dull and turning them into something interesting, finding an angle that's interesting. Those that that's a real challenge, you know. And I and I actually probably get just as much out of doing that as I, I've always disliked. Like I've never enjoyed celebrity interviews. I've never that's not my that's not my style of writing. I don't enjoy them. I just find that you're both sitting there playing a game, like mm-hmm. you're asking you questions, they're giving you the standard answer. It's just so incredibly, like you could, honestly, you might as well walk away and write the answers yourself. Yes, so I find that stuff really boring. Um, yes. And I would prefer to take something that is uh, kind of, you know, less glamorous, shall we say, and and turn that into something interesting that people like to read. Like that's that's where the challenge is. That's the meat and bones of freelancing, I think, is mm. is taking those 
those daily jobs, those smaller jobs, those jobs that kind of those bread and butter jobs and turning those jobs into something interesting. I think that's where the key is. I think the other point that she makes in this particular article, though, that I think is really important is there's a myth out there that freelance write or that can hold you back, that freelance writing is a solitary process. And I think if you see the writer as a solitary being and that you're going to sit around and do and, and and only, you know, just and be the writer in the garret. If you think that that is the way forward with freelance writing, you are going to be very sad because yeah. it's um, really important. She talks about the importance of having a community of mm. um, freelance writers around you and, you know, friends, mentors, fellow artists, other people who understand what you're going through. You need those people to stay motivated and, as she said, to stay healthy because, mm. you know, isolation can be a very debilitating thing for for a writer because you go mad. Like I personally, um, particularly when I was freelancing full-time, I used to find December really, really difficult because mm. it's that it's that time of the year when everyone who's on staff somewhere, like every Every time you rang an editor or something, they're at a Christmas party yeah. and you were sitting at home in your pajamas, you know, and it's yes. just like, oh my God, the whole world is going on without me. You need you need those people, you know, you need people to bounce off and people to talk to and people to ring on those days when you really need talking down off the ceiling. Um, yeah. And I think that you can't underestimate how important that is. Absolutely. And to add to that, I think that it's better off for you financially to have those people around you, to have that network, to, you know, meet up with them once a month or every two weeks or whatever (laughs) is convenient because, um, and I, I just know this from experience because I have, you know, a whole lot of freelancing friends and we do catch up. Um, but there has been the occasional freelancer who comes in and out of the group who wants to be this solitary writer or who sees us as competition. Mm. And the thing is when you see there's, there's enough work to go around and the great part about the freelancers I know is we refer work to each other. Like, mm. oh, I can't do that. Why don't you ask Valerie? or I can't do that, why don't you ask Alison or whatever, right? Mm. So we refer work to each other. But when you set yourself apart and you think everyone else is competition, they're not going to refer work to you because you're obviously not going to do the same for them. And so financially you're better off having that network as well. All right, so let's move on. We it's been a busy week for us, hasn't it, Alison? Because it's um, it's been the pre-launch period for the Creative Writing Thirty Day Bootcamp. This mm. is Alison's fantastic bootcamp, which originally started off as part of the her fantastic course, Make Time to Write. But so many people have asked for separate access to the boot camp because they just want to get stuck into it straight away and they want to um, uh, get write their 10,000 words because um, the thing that's guaranteed if you follow all of the instructions is that by the end of 30 days, you will have 10,000 words. Many people are getting way more than 10,000 words. Now, this boot camp officially opens on the 10th of March and um, it's it's um, that's when you can get access to it, but you don't have to start it on on the tenth of March. In fact, you've got a whole year you can start it. You can press the button at any time and start it when you're ready. But if you purchase, so get in, hurry before the tenth of March. It's at a never to be repeated price. 
It's uh. normally $97, but before the 10th of March, if you purchase before the 10th of March, but you'll get access after the 10th of March, um, it's $47, which is pretty amazing. But why don't you say in your own words what you think the boot camp can do for people, Al? Look, I think it's one of those things that um, what it provides you is uh, company, someone to hold your hand, someone to motivate you every day. It will be me in your inbox motivating you every day to write a certain number of words, um, some days more than others, some days none at all. What um, what we're trying to achieve is a sustainable writing habit. So not only will you get your 10,000 words, but I'm trying to get you into the zone of continuing on with that. And the joy of it too is that once you've done the 30 days and you you've got your 10,000 words. Um, if it's working for you, just press the button again and start mm. again for another 30 days and get yourself another 10,000 words. So, you know, you have access to the course for a whole year. Um, mm. Technically, you could get that whole book written. Or two, two books. <laughs> or two, depending, could, on, what, depending right? on the length you're writing. Exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm. If you want to find out more, then just go to uh, creativewritingbootcamp.com. That's creativewritingbootcamp.com. Now, you have an interesting link for us about author pages. Is that right? I do. It's just um, I know I know we sort of talk about this um, on a semi-regular basis, but it is something that we get a lot of questions about because I think people find it really, really hard to know how to write their author page, like what to put on the About Me page or whatever. Um, and so I came across this uh, link, which is on a website called smartauthorsites.com, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically five questions to ask yourself before you start to write your author page. And this, I think all it, all it aims to do is to start you thinking about how you want to present yourself and to give you um, some of those basic questions to ask to go through it. So, you know, the first question is, should I write it in the first person or the third person? Um, You will often see um, bios written in the third person. Mine is written in the third person. That's kind of how I prefer to do it. But that's not to say that first person may not work better for you. Um, And the great thing about this particular little uh, post, which we will put the link in the show notes um, for you so that you can access it is that it um it shows you examples of both it actually sends you to pages that have a bio written in the yeah. first person and um so you can actually see and then you can decide um it helps you decide you know whether you need a photo and i'd say yes you do um yeah. but helps you make a decision about what kind of photo you might like to have, um, how much information to share about yourself, um, just lots of different things. Like the thing I guess is important to realize about these kind of, about an author website, it's your, it's your page, it's your website. You can actually do whatever you want on it. Um, So what the, what you probably want to do is, is you want to do the research. You need to go through, have a look at some third person uh, author bios, have a look at some first person, think to yourself, which of these do I like best? And then make it, make your decisions based on that. And it's just, uh, it helps to give you a little bit of direction as to what you might want to do with your own author page. I have a very strong opinion about the first person or third person thing. Right. Yes. Yeah, and it does surprise me that you would have a strong opinion. <laughs> Tell and me. I do agree that both can work, but mm-hmm. I think from, on a practical level, 
third person, like what you have, is mm. is best. I've done both and the difference was profound for me. Mm. Uh, so I used to have it in third person and it was all fine. Then I thought, oh, I'd be quite different. and I'd, Well, not quite different. I thought I'd change it up to first person and make it, um, you know, a little bit sassy and interesting. But what I found was that people really struggled at um, events because people go to your about page when they want to get your bio to feature you Mm -hmm. at an author talk or to feature you at some kind of event. And when it's written in first person, it's really hard for them to change it up because what they, they can't quite do a straight cut and paste. If they change it, it ends up being awkward. If Mm. they're trying to introduce you to the podium, they're saying all this stuff which sounds great in first person but does not sound good in third person. So Mm. after doing that for maybe two years, I changed it to third person and I've never had a problem since. So I used to cringe every time someone would introduce me because they were grabbing something from my um, my author webpage, which was in first person. But now when they grab it, it just it flows off their tongue. It sounds fine. Well, I mean, we've talked about this before too because obviously we visit a lot of author websites when we're putting together the um, questions for our podcasts and things. And I have to say that the people who give me a nice, neat one paragraph in third person yes. uh, message introduction, I mean, I will generally just pretty much read out exactly what's there. And I guess that's the important thing to remember. If you provide that paragraph, then you control the message. Yes, and I think absolutely. that if you, if, if you're sort of like, you know, trying to kind of, um, what's the word I want position yourself, you know, do it, do it how you want to be positioned, not how someone else sees you. Um, so if you provide the third person, one paragraph intro, then that's how they're going to introduce you. And I think that's, really worth thinking about. Yep. Fantastic. All right. Shall we move on to our giveaway this week? Let's. Right. So our giveaway is awesome because, in fact, it's right in front of me. (laughs) Because we remember how in episode 152, we interviewed David Crystal, who is the author of Making Sense, the glamorous story of English grammar. And I, I remember saying, oh, he's a cracker. And a couple yeah. of people on social media, yes, uh, you know, recently um, tweeted and said, you're so right. He's a cracker because <laughs> he was just <laughs> such great fun to, to interview. So we have his book to give away, Making Sense, the Glamorous Story of Engli- English Grammar, not even speaking English properly, uh, by David Crystal. So make sure that you enter. Just go to writerscentercomau slash win in order to enter. And if you find that this particular giveaway is over by the time you listen to this episode and go to that particular URL, don't worry, there'll be another awesome giveaway. So um, head on over to writercenter.com com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Blogging for Beginners on-demand course has been created for you if you want to set up your own blog, but you're not sure where to start. If you're a total newbie, this course covers which platform to use, structuring and naming your blog, what to write about, updating content and much more. By the end, you will have started your blog. Plus, 
because it's one of our on-demand courses you can learn when and where it suits you with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash blogging. All right, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I have never been more ready. <laughs> have you heard of this word before? Blatherskite. Uh, no, I haven't, <laughs> but it sounds really old English. Blatherskite, that's B-L-A-T-H-E-R, blatherskite, S-K-I-T-E, blatherskite. So this is a noun that refers to someone given to voluble empty talk. So I'm sure we all know a blatherskite in our lives or two or three. So you might say, I've stopped paying attention to him because he's such a blatherskite. There you go. It's a good well, word, isn't it? It's very Shakespearean. Sounds like something he would use. I like it. I'm going to use it. Okay. I look forward to seeing you use it. And if you would like to use Valerie's word of the week in one of your blog posts or or some such Facebook update, whatever, then uh, please let us know. Tag us on social media so we can see it in action. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we move on to our writer in residence this week? Let's. This was a really fun interview because I've known of Caroline Baum and, you know, her many activities for many years because you often see Caroline um, interviewing other authors at writers' mm. festivals and um, also talking about books. She's a respected journalist and presenter. She's worked for the BBC, the ABC, Vogue, uh, was the founding editor of Good Reading magazine and um, until recently the editorial director of Booktopia. She has written a memoir and it's called Only – a singular memoir, and um, I have to say, it's 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 a fantastic read. So oh. let's have a chat to Caroline. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Valerie. I feel really strange, Caroline, because usually I am watching you as the interviewer or hearing you as the interviewer because you have interviewed so many authors in your life. You're very um, active in the um, publishing industry or certainly at every writers' festival. And I've thoroughly enjoyed many of your chats with, with other authors. So I find it just a little bit it's you know strange. It's a bit of an out of body experience, asking you the questions. Well, but- if you think it's strange, <laughs> let me tell you, I think it's strange too. It must be really weird, right? <laughs> because it's, it's it's just you know you're the one who usually gets to ask all the probing things, and now you're on the other end. Well, I can tell you, Valerie, I feel much more comfortable here not being in that situation because, you know, asking the questions, particularly when it's live on stage Mm. with someone where you've done an enormous amount of work and it's not working, that's when you're really sweating and your stress (laughs) levels are going through the roof. I hope you're not going to feel like that today. Oh, I hope not. I hope not. (laughs) But I knew I had to talk to you because as soon as I saw this book, I thought, oh my God, this is, I bet you this is going to be fascinating. I bet you it's going to be awesome. And it certainly didn't disappoint. Now, just for the readers and listeners who haven't uh, read your book yet, can you tell us what it is about? 
Okay, so it's a memoir, and it's a memoir, I suppose, taken through the lens of being an only child, because it seemed to me that that defines you in a very particular way that goes beyond childhood. So the funny thing is the way the word child kind of sticks to you in adult life when you're an only child. It's as if you never grow up. And I wanted to look at that arc of growing up as an only in a fairly singular way with a very particular set of parents who'd been affected by tragedy. But I also wanted to go through the complete arc, if you like, and get to the other end of what it feels like to be an only child when you're the adult and suddenly you become acutely aware of the responsibility that you have as the only person to look after your parents. Yep. Absolutely. Now, I really relate to this because I am an only child as well. And and it was really interesting because as I was reading it, I was just thinking, I resonated with so much in it. And I know that people are going to resonate with so much in it, regardless of whether they're an only child or not. But there are certain things that I was like, oh my God, yes, I did think that (laughs) as well. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Valerie. And I'm also really glad that you're pointing out that you think it will resonate with non-onlys because I think, you know, there's an awful lot of other stuff in there about parents with trauma, family secrets, what it means to think of yourself as a good or a bad daughter. There are a lot of other things that I explore along the way. It's just that obviously the only way I know how to see the world is as an only child. Mm, absolutely. Now, many people know you as a journalist or a presenter, as we mentioned it before, a lover of books. Um, but and, and you've read so many books. But and you've decided to write this memoir now, and you've explained what you wanted to explore. But why now? Hmm, good question. Look, I've been writing fragments of this book for probably 10 years, and only in the last five years did things start to gel and make me think that those little scraps that I'd been writing could be made into a quilt of sorts. Mm. Um, I think that's a technique for writing that Sue Wolfe and Patty Miller, who are both great teachers of creative writing, have advocated that you don't necessarily have to have a linear approach to the way you assemble a book. And that appealed to me very much, I think, because as a journalist, you're always writing scraps and fragments. Um, You know, you're writing short pieces and you don't ever really think about how they might all join up. So Mm. I had written biographical fragments, which had been published in The Good Weekend. I had written longer biographical pieces for an anthology called My Mother, My Father on Losing a Parent, which was edited by Susan Windham. And it was really when Susan asked me to contribute to that anthology. At first, I said to her, but I I haven't lost a parent. Both my parents are alive. But she said, well, actually, you've lost a parent to dementia. You know, your, your father is no longer present. And um, so uh, that that piece sort of gave me the courage, if you like, to go further, because I think, you know, you mentioned the reading and there's a funny thing, Valerie, about reading for a living, reading professionally. So I was reading for Booktopia. I was reading up to 15 books a month. Before that, I'd been reading for various jobs at the ABC, etc. And sometimes it's like clogging your arteries with fat. You fill up your brain with other people's voices and you absolutely manage to convince yourself that the last thing the world needs is another book or to hear (laughs) from you. So 
I had to do a kind of detox. And I think that I could only write this book now because I had started to wean myself off jobs, which caused a kind of binging reading disorder. And once I started to read more in a more targeted way and started to read memoir, I started to think, is there a chink in the canon of memoir where I could contribute something? Wow. I love how you say you needed to go on a detox. I, I know how you feel sometimes. It's a, well, of course you do. <laughs> so when you say that you, it was written in fragments over, you know, 19 years or whatever, when you started weaning yourself and, and reading in a more targeted way and thinking this might work in, as a longer piece, on a practical level, how did you start weaving those fragments together or did you start again or, you know, what actually happened? Oh, well, I went trawling back for um, the original piece that started all of this was a piece that was triggered by an exercise in a life writing class with Patty Miller, where she asked us to bring an object into class one day that had some kind of potency or resonance for us. Mm-hmm. And I went home and I looked and I thought, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I don't don't have anything that's giving off that kind of energy to me until I realized that at the back of a desk drawer, I had something that I had completely forgotten, which was a little envelope with a black edge around it um, with an extraordinary name on it, of it, on it, which was that it came from the office of Jacqueline Kennedy. And um, it allowed me to tell a story from my childhood about how I reacted at the age of five to the news of JFK's death and the impact that that had on my parents and why I came to be in possession of that envelope. And... Um, So that was the sort of cornerstone. And of course, when you're growing up, you think that your childhood is normal. And so it was only when I read that piece in the class that I got the reaction that made me think, you know what, that's not so normal. That is not normal. Um, And so then I went looking for other instances and moments where I thought, is that a typical childhood? Maybe it's not so typical that this happened and that Mm. happened. And also you are encouraged, aren't you, over dinner when you tell a story about your life and people keep saying to you, you've got to write a book. Half of the time you discount that and you go, yeah, yeah, whatever. But then, you know, there is a sort of a seed planted. And I thought, well, okay, I'll have a go at it. And so I was looking for a shape. I was looking for a structure. And as my father tragically became ill, I realized that his illness gave me a kind of climax to work towards and a sort of resolution. Mm-mm. Now, you talk about that um, that letter from Jackie Kennedy and how about the story from your childhood, and there are many very rich and um, and wonderful stories from your childhood which are so clear and so vivid. How did you go about making them so vivid? How did you go about remembering them? Hmm. Is it something, is your childhood still really fresh in your brain or something? Um, Not as fresh as I would like. And in fact, if I had to subtitle this book or give it another name, I would call it, I wish I had paid more attention. (laughs) 
because, you know, you think that you're noticing things and you think that as a journalist, you've been trained to notice things and then you can't remember vital details. So what I did have access to, which was incredibly valuable, was I had my angsty teenage and in fact, pre-teenage diaries and they were excruciating Mm. to read. So... (laughs) I even have the diary that I had when I was um, eight or nine, when I had a ghoulish fascination for disaster. And whenever there was a plane crash, I used to note in my diary the number of bodies retrieved from the crash site. (laughs) So that took me back into the sense of having this rather dark consciousness as a child and and asking myself, did I get that from my parents who were both carrying so much trauma in their past, which they yeah. kept from me, yeah. but, but was that somehow transmitted to me subliminally? And then I also have a box of over 300 letters from my father, which he started writing to me, I guess, back when I was at university and then wrote to me for all the years that I've lived in Australia while he was back in England. Mm. And those letters were really valuable and really precious in reminding me of how much he infuriated me and how much he Mm. tried to control my life. But it was also, Mm. you know, salutary and a reminder of how refined and cultured he was, what an enthusiast he was, how much he wanted to share the things he was passionate Mm. about with me. Um, so, so those letters were very, very valuable. I've only quoted from them very sparsely, but they were a really good resource. Mm-mm. And um, when you um, decided, okay, that you, the seed was planted, you know, people, you, you, you had your fragments of stories and people told you at dinner parties, um, <laughs> you really should write a book. At, when you decided, okay, I'm going to do it, Did you tell us about that process? How did you start thinking? I mean, did you think I'm just going to, I'm going to write it chronologically. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to find the key moments in my life. Did you, and did you throw yourself into it full time? Because as you said, you'd weaned yourself off a couple of your responsibilities that you had to read so many books. Um, Tell us about the practical aspect of, and process of getting X number of words into a manuscript. Okay, so this is the thing with a journalist. You know, I'm always fascinated by journalists who write long form, whether it's um, creative nonfiction or novels. But I think we are all addicted to the short-term instant gratification of seeing our byline relatively quickly. And long form presents a huge challenge. And so I had to trick myself uh, into switching from being a sprinter to a marathon runner. And the way to do that was to write episodically, was to write as if I was setting myself journalistic assignments of about 2,000 words for a chapter Mm. and then just seeing if I could string them together. Now, originally, the first draft was not chronological and I attempted probably for a beginner an overambitious structure which did a lot of flipping backwards and forwards in time and place. And when the structural edit remarks came back from um, Ali Laveau, um, who was the structural editor, that Alan and Unwin um, assigned to me, and I was really, really grateful to have her because she had a great reputation. Um, she identified the structure as problematic and said, you know, you can go with this, but you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z to sort of bolster it. Or you could go for a more convention- conventional, more chronological, more linear 
timeline. And I thought mm. to myself, given that I'm a novice, I think that maybe going in a more straight line might make the material stronger uh, and not detract by forcing the reader to ask themselves, where are we now and why are we jumping backwards? And I haven't written it in an absolutely strictly chronological mm. order. It is still, as you would know, there are moments which are quite sort of impressionistic. But I do think that um, in order to go the distance, you know, in the end, I have come to the conclusion that stamina is as important mm -hmm. as talent or imagination or style or uniqueness of voice because you just have to keep going to get to 80,000 words <laughs> and you have to be able to chuck out 10, 20 or 30,000 of those words. You've got to be absolutely brutal mm -hmm. with your own copy, which of course as a journalist, the good training about being a journalist is you have probably successively learned not to be precious about your copy yep. and you are prepared to be ruthless. Mm. Now, you said that you needed to trick yourself and write episodically. What other structures did you put in place um, to help you get to your 80,000 words? Did you, um, you know, cause I'm going to write six hours today or I'm going to write <laughs> 2,000 words today or, you know, like anything like that to actually keep you on track and, and disciplined so that you could have that stamina? No. In, in, a, in, a, in a short answer, the word is no. I lacked the kind of discipline that I fantasized about having. And what saved wow. my bacon was that I did sign up to do two writer's retreats with Charlotte Wood. So Charlotte ran two retreats um, by invitation uh, for a small group of friends that she has in the writing community, which uh, involved going away for a week at a time and really um, working in an intensive way so that we would start every morning with a sort of um, objective and goal-setting conversation after breakfast for about 10 or 15 minutes, just seven of us, say, in a room. And then we would go and write all day. And at the end of the day, over a delicious dinner cooked by Charlotte, we would tell each other what we'd achieved, what problems we'd encountered, and what we were hoping to do the next day. And the important thing is that unlike the models for some retreats, including, say, retreats run at Varuna and at other places, we had a very, very steadfast rule that we would not read our work aloud because we thought that that might be premature or unhelpful or set up something competitive or a dynamic that would not be beneficial. And so I found that those two separate weeks undertaken a year apart were absolutely critical. The first one I went to when uh, I had just come back from my father's funeral and I was a sobbing mess and mm. the poor people on that retreat had to put up with that and were incredibly kind and very understanding. And a year later, I was working on another draft and was in more robust shape and was doing a lot more of the kind of um, – reworking, filling in gaps, that kind of stuff. Mm. Now, you have used a couple of words in our conversation that kind of make me smile and are slightly hilarious because you've <laughs> referred to yourself as a beginner and as a novice. And when you're reading this, 
Oh, my God, they are the two furthest words because this, to me, is the work of a master. I'm not just saying it, but as I'm reading it, I'm just letting their words wash over me. I mean, the story, of, co- of course, and the insight is, is certainly very interesting, but for me it's the the writing that that keeps this that, that makes this so compelling. And so um, what what's the word? A rich experience for the reader. So when you um, what are your influences then in terms of your own writing? Because you would be so one of the most widely read people out there. Yeah, but that's the trouble. That's the <laughs> trouble. You know, it's very intimidating because you've been reading a lot and also you've been published a fair bit as a journalist. And mm. so there might be expectations out there and you have to set those aside. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be derivative. You don't want to in, in, imitate anybody else. And, you know, you you laugh possibly at me calling myself a novice and a beginner. But the fact of the matter is that I'd been trained as a journalist not to use the word I and not to, uh, you know, most of your bread and butter journalism is interviewing other people or writing about places or writing about some particular situation. And so the whole business of placing yourself at the center of a story feels completely uh, not only counterintuitive, but it sort of feels wrong. You feel like you're doing something you've been told all your professional life not to do. And so I'm not being falsely modest. You know, I saw myself described somewhere as an established writer. And I thought, this is my first flipping book. I am an emerging writer. Thank you very much. I may be 50 something, but I do not feel like I'm an established writer. Um, And for guidance, look, I read the inspirational books that were in the genre that I was writing that had a very strong and clear voice. Um, Richard Glover's Flesh Wounds was important. Mm -hmm. Magda Zubansky's Reckoning. Um, Mary Carr, The Liars Club, for me, was the book that pushed me over the edge into understanding that you had to be able to write viscerally and make people feel things physically in their guts and that you had to be prepared to face shame and embarrassment if you were going to be truly authentic, you know, that you just cannot quarantine or Mm. try and protect any part of yourself because the reader will know. Mm. Yeah. What was, what was the most challenging part of writing the memoir? I suppose the bits where I don't come across as a particularly Nice person. Look, you know, one of the things I understood, Valerie, is that I think that you don't write memoir to be liked. I think you do write memoir because you hope to be understood. And I feel that as someone who came to this country 30 years ago with a particular accent and a particular background of privilege, that I was often misunderstood. And I think that I'm offering this book up as a way, well, as a plea, if you like, to say, please try to understand that I am the way I am because of this background and this unique set of circumstances. Um, So I think that there's a chapter in the book where I write about estrangement, about walking away from my parents in my 40s and not speaking to them for three years. I think that was very difficult to write, Mm. despite the way that chapter resolves. Um, 
a spoiler alert. No, I'm not going to say no, anything about no, that. But no, <laughs> um, you know, there, and and obviously, obviously, given that you've read the book, you would understand this. There was an enormous amount of um, diffidence that I had in writing stories that don't belong to me. So a story mm. about my mother and my father's infidelity, writing those parts of the book really forced me to address ethical questions. And, mm. you know, my mother has a sense of privacy that belongs to her generation that is not the same sense of privacy that millennials have. Mm -hmm. And so that was quite difficult to navigate. Um, take me back to you became a journalist. Um, when when you were, it's just if you can tell people, when did your love of writing or words or journalism and subsequently books, how did that all form? Perhaps if you can just tell listeners. Well, um, well, I suppose I grew up in a very, very bookish household and we read the papers compulsively and obsessively and we discussed the papers all the way through my childhood. That was a sort of favourite kind of um, fairly neutral ground, actually, compared to the sort of more combative conversations at home. Mm. And then uh, I entered a competition when I was um, 16, I think, in London at school. Uh, and the prize for the competition was um, it was a competition that was set by Vogue magazine. And the prize was a year working for the magazine. And I was the youngest winner in the UK. And so in my gap year between school and university, I went off to Vogue House in Hanover Square and uh, was plonked in the middle of the features department and given a job as the assistant to an extraordinary clutch of women, um, very, very high powered and very talented women who went on to write great things and edit great things. Women like Lucy Hughes Hallett, who's a fantastic award winning biographer, Polly Devlin, um, Joan Juliet Buck, who became the editor of French Vogue. Uh, and, and so I just soaked everything up through every pore in my skin. And I knew then and there that I didn't want to do anything else ever. <laughs> and so what are you working on now? Are you working on another book or uh, now that you're, you know, yeah. 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 I um. I was very lucky. In 2015, I won the Hazel Rowley Fellowship, and I had interviewed Hazel Rowley a couple of times, and was a huge admirer of her work as a biographer. And so, um, I'm writing a biography of a relatively obscure 19th-stroke 20th-century French woman, Lucy Dreyfus, who was married to a man called Alfred Dreyfus, who was the cause and the trigger of the biggest political scandal in France when he was wrongfully accused of treason and exiled to Devil's Island. And it had always fascinated me in this story and the way it's been told because there's an enormous literature around the Dreyfus case and what it came to symbolize in France and in Europe in terms of anti-Semitism, etc., um, that Lucy Dreyfus was always, always left out of the story. And I always wanted to know, how did that woman endure the scandal, the suffering, the mm. separation from her husband, and what was their life like when he came back? So um, I have been using the fellowship to uh, research a biography. So the focus of attention will no longer be me. It will be somebody <laughs> else. So for those people who are listening and are currently writing or intend to hope to write their own memoir, um, having gone through the process now yourself, and I would say gone through it successfully, what would your advice be to them in terms of things that they might not uh, to be aware of? 
you know, because they 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 haven't they haven't written it yet. So things hmm. to be aware of when they're going to go through the process. Well, look, um, I do think that one of the things that really uh, helped me was thinking about having a thematic kind of organizing principle. So mine obviously was the singularity of being an only child. And that was brought about really by reading Sean Pryor's book, Shy. And I had a sort of moment of writerly envy when I saw that she'd chosen to write her story through the prism of her particular form of social anxiety. And I thought that was really original. So if you can find a, a sort of a sort of um, a lateral way into memoir, memoir is such an overcrowded field mm-hmm. that you've got to find something that is unique and distinctive to you that will cut through the noise in the genre and make people go, oh, now that's a story I haven't heard before. And the other thing that I learned from Magda Zubansky and Richard Glover is that if you have a story that's painful and if you have a story that does contain hurt and grievance, you have to find a way to tell your story and take bitterness out of it because bitterness, mm. I think, alienates the reader. Mm. And I, I asked Magda about this at the Byron Writers' Festival. I said, how did you do it? And I asked Richard as well. And actually, um, uh, Rosie Rosie Waterland was on that panel mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, and they all sort of said the same thing. If your manuscript contains bitterness, it means that you haven't done enough work on yourself And you haven't done enough work on your manuscript. And I found that such valuable, valuable advice. Wonderful. So did you find that in your first drafts, the draft, that the bitterness was there and subsequently realised you needed to work on yourself? Well, uh, the short answer to that, Valerie, is yes. And that did involve taking out some adjectives. And I think that when you take the adjectives out that are sort of loaded and freighted with, you know, your resentment, again, you're not leaving the reader room to make up their own mind about what Mm. they think about the scene that you're painting. So, um, yes, there was a little bit of a nip and tuck that went on there. But (laughs) apart from the nip and tuck to the actual manuscript, did you – find the process therapeutic and to change you? I think it really has. I think, you know, this is not, I really want to emphasize this. This is not a book that's been written as therapy. I really, Mm. I I hope it doesn't read that way. Oh no, it certainly does not come across that way. But, Mm. but having said that, I have to say that I feel lighter and I feel that in the process of writing the story, I understand myself better, I understand my parents better, and I feel like I'm letting go of an enormous amount of baggage. Mm. Incredible. Okay, well, this is an incredible book, everyone, and you should definitely read it. It's, um, It's just beautiful. It's just beautifully written. Thank you so much for your time today, Caroline. It's an absolute pleasure, Valerie, and you ask brilliant questions. There we go, Caroline Baum. What a terrific interview, Valerie. 
Yeah, it was great fun. I really, I really liked the book and it was great to chat to Caroline as well. And she, um, I think it's great that one of the things she did was worked with Paddy Miller, who of course uh-huh. is one of our presenters at the Australian Writers' Centre, and she has mentored so many people's memoirs uh, to publication. She's like the memoir queen. She is. She's amazing. And as you she's say, amazing. she's worked with so many people. Like she, mm. she must be in the midwife for, I don't know, a million books. <laughs> Don't you think? Yes, I do think. I think. <laughs> and she's teaching courses for us in Sydney and Melbourne in life writing. So you can check um, out those courses on the website, writercentre.com.au. But let's move on to our app pick for the week. Okay. So, well, so many people live in Gmail. Don't you think? Like a lot of people do use Gmail. So yeah, yeah, I wanted lot, to yeah. mention a couple of add-ons for Gmail that can be useful. And one of them is canned responses. Now, you've heard us speak before about the wonders of Text Expander, where you can where but you have to pay for Text Expander, where you can just type sort of like a shortcut and it can type out paragraphs of pre-written. Um, stuff, uh, which you might use if you're writing form letters or, or you're writing something that's quite repetitive. So Gmail have a similar thing, which is free, uh, mm-hmm. called canned responses. And I think this is great. I used to, uh, I used to use this when, um, uh, for example, let's say you put out a call out on Source Bottle, and you know because you, you're looking for a case study for one of the articles that you're writing of a fire breathing budgie um, uh, unicyclist with back pain. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone get that right. Okay. <laughs> She wouldn't um, take that job, though, would you? Seriously? Anyway, yes, continue. No, well, if you're looking for some kind of case study or expert, but you get a hundred responses. Now, I'm mm-hmm. one of these polite people. Even though Source Bottle says don't expect a response because you know journalists are really busy, I'm one of these polite people who will reply and say, you know, oh, thank sure. you, and we'll let you know if you move to the next step, kind of thing. But I'm not going to type it out a hundred times. So I would use canned responses with that, <laughs> and so I would just have a straight forward response that pretty much says, you know, acknowledges that they have sent something in and therefore I don't have to type it all out. So I think that um, canned responses is a good one. Yes. Another another one that I have used in the past is wise stamp. So sometimes you want a nice looking um, email signature and often Gmail doesn't necessarily give you uh, that option when you just got plain text, but mm. Wise Stamp is an add-on that can give you a very pretty um, e- email signature, which you can create through really drag and drop means. And it can also, what it can do is, it can, if you want, it can um, pull in your latest blog post, the, a link to your oh. latest blog post, or it can pull in your latest Instagram pictures if you're more of a visual person, communicator, um, or it can pull in whatever URL you want actually at, in okay. your Wise stamp. So I think that that is a good one as well. So just a couple of um, Gmail add-ons that might be useful to people. Mm. There you go. Hmm. Thanks for that, Valerie. Yes, you're welcome. Anyway, that brings us almost to the end of this week's episode. What are you up to in the coming week? Well, I am... Uh, Yes? I am doing an edit on 
the second book in the Adaban Cipher series, which oh is my, my God, new are we series. Up to that? Jeez. Well, just you know, wow. things roll on, don't they? So yeah. I um, this is kind of like it's not an official structural edit. It's it's a first draft that needs to be seriously thought about. So it's one of those situations where I've written the first draft and it's um it's an unusual situation for me because generally speaking, as we've discussed, I tend to underwrite a first draft. Mm. Um, so then I have to go in and add 5,000 words to it um, as mm. I'm writing and layering and things like that. Um, this particular book is a really complicated um, setup. And so I'm, and, and it's also a book that's responding to the first book. So there's a lot of um, answers in this particular mm. book. And so I had, um, I had to get, all of the things out of my head to make sure that I could actually tie up these all of these ends and threads and there are so many of them um so this book is that um but it's probably about 5,000 words too long oh and yeah it's interesting and I think what I'm gonna have to do is actually remove a storyline which is uh yeah but that's okay. I'm, I'm all right with that because I think it's um, it makes sense to me. I can yeah. see that it clearly needs to be done and okay. it's all good. And it's not a storyline. It's a storyline that's been introduced in the second book as opposed to one that's, you know, the, okay. that's tied back to the to the uh, first book. So yeah. I'm just going to neatly, surgically mm. remove it. <laughs> wow. So how do you surgically and neatly remove it when it's so interwoven into a manuscript? Well... I haven't got to the actual nuts and bolts of how I'm going to do that yet. <laughs> I'm sounding really confident here and I, I'm just going to neatly and surgically remove that. Um, so, yes, I, it's a – it's going to be interesting, but I can see that I can see that it needs to be done and I can see how I need to do it. I'm just not exactly sure of the logistics of doing it just yet. Okay. I'll get back to you about that next week. <laughs> you can ask me how I'm, I how will. I'm going. Yeah, yeah. Oh it's just uh, there's a. I think it's it'll come down to two or three key scenes that need to be removed, and the information from those key scenes will need to be put else. Like any other, any information that is still required for the ongoing nature of the story will need to be put elsewhere. So. <laughs> You're going to be busy this this week. Well, it's like a puzzle, isn't it? You kind of yeah. it's that yeah, it's an, it's interesting, but it it is difficult because you do have that notion of well, and and I can't lose anything that's that's kind of because you know book one is is almost at the printers, so I can't I can't no. lose anything that's kind of really relevant to that. So it's yeah, it's going to be an interesting challenge, but I'll let you know next week how I'm going with that. What about wow. you, Val? What are you doing? I am heading to Brisbane this week, so I will be keynoting with um, about four other authors uh, and we will be talking, uh, where will we be? At the Convention Centre, the Brisbane Convention Centre, um, talking about, and I will be talking about how to build your profile. So that's going to be fun. Brisbane's always great, so I'm going to attempt to catch a show or go to the art gallery or something like that while I'm there and I'm really committed to taking myself out on a creative date every week ideally so even if I'm in Brisbane I'm going to try and make myself do that because I'm just getting so much out of it great Mm, really really fun anyway where do we find you online Al? 
Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer, and you will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? Uh, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And remember, do let me know if you know one of those car washers because I want to know. Feel free to connect with me on Facebook. I'm the Valerie Koo that's in Sydney. And, uh, of course, you can find all of the links in, in the show notes um, at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.